Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Tidewater Sandals. Where will your tidewaters take you? When you're ready for your writing break, sometimes a little walk is all it takes. Tidewater Sandals offers flip-flops that are both stylish and comfortable. Tidewater Sandals are made with five layers of compressed yoga mat material for all-day cushioning. The footbed is brushed to keep your foot from slipping and designed to mold to your feet. Those long walks can help break down rider's block, and the versatility of Tidewaters can keep you comfortably on your feet while working out those pesky plot holes. Tidewaters are also great for casual and dressed up looks. Wear them to the beach or out to dinner once you're done riding. Tidewaters are lightweight, pack well for trips, and a teacher discount is offered year round. Visit tidewatersandals.com. Tidewater Sandals. Where will your Tidewaters take you? Are you ready to supercharge your healing journey? Access greater ease, joy, and clarity in your life? Lindsay Cluen is here for you. Lindsay's truest passion has been supporting sensitive souls like writers with her intuitive readings, healing, and classes for over a decade. Lindsay amplifies what supports your best and highest intentions while gently clearing away what no longer supports or aligns with you. Each session is unique and is catered to your soul's path, as well as your unique questions, curiosities, needs, and dreams. Her clients have experienced profound healing and evolution on all layers of their experience, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. This often translates into huge leaps in their lives from their sense of self to their relationships and careers. Her website includes testimonials like this one. I feel like parts of me and my past have been healed. I am more clear-headed, lighter, and connected. Learn more, book your session, or register for her classes at www.lindsaycluen.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-K-L-U-I-N.com. We're here with Dr. Tara Green, who has degrees in English from Louisiana State University and Dillard University. She has 25 years of teaching experience. She's currently a professor of African-American studies at the University of Houston. Two books came out recently, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, as well as See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure, during the interwar era. So I'd like to first talk about your book about Alice Dunbar Nelson. Most people probably aren't even aware of who she is. And if they are, it is probably in relation to her ex-husband, who is the poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, 
I'm from Ohio. And so Lawrence Dunbar is someone that we talk about a lot here and usually in a highly positive light. So if you'd like to just talk a little bit about the book, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, which is available from Bloomsbury. Thank you for allowing me to be on the show today. I grew up in the New Orleans area, and I did not know about Alice Dunbar Nelson. I was not aware of her work until I was a student at Dillard University. Just so happens I was an English major. I can still remember reading her work for the first time. Actually, I think I remember the impression that I got from her work. I can't even remember which short story I read. And that was when I found out that she had graduated from an iteration of the institution that is now Dillard University. She graduated from Strait University. Some years later, I would wonder why did she leave New Orleans to marry Paul Lawrence Dunbar? Because I knew that colorism, the discrimination that occurs because of people of color, this is something that we deal with in various communities, lighter skinned people have a certain kind of privilege. And she was in New Orleans and she was very light-skinned. So why would she marry Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was a darker-skinned man, even though he was a famous man? And so the book really sort of looks at not only their relationship from her perspective, but the life that she had as a political activist and as a teacher and as a child growing up in New Orleans before she even met him. And then he was not actually her ex-husband, but her first husband. She would become his respected widow after his death. Then she would marry two other men, but she would continue with her careers as a suffragist, a political activist with the Republican Party. She just did so much. She was a member of the Black Women's Club that was certainly committed to the uplift of the Black race at a time of severe and overt discrimination, not only in the South, but in other parts of the country as well. So there was so much to learn about her, and it took me 10 years to pull that project together. That is a real work of the heart then. That's a ton of research, a ton of dedication, a ton of delving into an area that I think people are really kind of beginning to understand so many women, especially minorities, moving in the background, moving in the shadows to be active and to take risks and do the things that they did. And we don't even know their names. Yeah. And she was just one of many. It's kind of easy to point to her in some ways because she was well known and she was well known because she kept her husband's, her first husband's name in the air, if you will. So she became the one who had the access to his royalties because she stayed married to him. That was the smart thing. And she kept his last name, even when she married twice more. She was one who was in the spotlight, but there were hundreds of Black women who were involved with the Black Club Women's Movement in rural towns and larger cities in the country. And their names we do not know, but they were fighting for a better United States of America. 
talking about doing that research and working on something for 10 years, how do you go about putting together all of that information and how do you decide what makes it into the book? Because I'm sure just as a novelist, I know how much research I do to write fiction and how little of it actually ends up in the book. Give me an idea of what that process is like when you're working on nonfiction and obviously just really dedicating yourself to research. It was quite the challenge. And I think that's why it took 10 years. I would think that I was finished. I would send it out. Readers would say, we don't like this because of these reasons. And it was usually because I didn't have enough. It was never because I had too much. Develop here. Why didn't you say this about that? So her archives, most of her materials were sold to the University of Delaware. And that was my starting place. They have housed diaries, scrapbooks, unpublished works, published works in their various iterations, letters. So all of these materials were available There were some scholars who had done some work, but no one had written a biography. So how do I come to it and make those decisions? I have to look at and think about what has already been published. So that's, of course, part of the research. And then I try to, as much as possible, trace a chronology. I also had to consider my audience. What is it that an audience who does not have the training that I have as a literary scholar, what is it that they would need to know? So I would find myself repeating things at times and saying things that I might not ordinarily say if I had a primary audience of literary scholars who may have known her work or maybe history bluffs who know loads of stuff about what happened in Wilmington, Delaware at a specific time, because that's where she spent most of her life. So I had to think for multiple readers. And that was something that I had not done before. So this was a different journey for me as a writer. And when you're talking about having to consider what else has been done, like what work is already out there, that's not so different from writing fiction, where you really do have to consider the market. You can't just be someone who's like, I'm really passionate about this one thing and this one person, and I want you to be too. Like, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, and publishers will not publish if you're going with a certain kind of press. But publishers won't publish unless you can tell them that there's a market and then who that market is. So saying, oh, well, this is unique and nobody has written about this before. I just read an editor say this on Twitter. That's ridiculous. If this is so unique and no one has written about it before, there may be a reason for that. The marketing becomes really important. I really had to think not so much as a person with this PhD in English. I had to use that to do the research because I've, I've been doing archival work since I was in graduate school. So I knew how to do that research, but writing that research in such a way that it could be an interesting story and to introduce to readers all of this work that people generally just don't know anything about because either it hadn't been published 
Or as you said, they just don't know Alice Dunbar Nelson. They know Paul Lawrence, but they don't know her. So how do I talk about her work and talk about it in such a way that it shows who she was as a person, who she was as a political activist, and who she was as a Black woman living at a specific time. So many corners and so many pieces of the puzzle that create a whole human being. And yet also, you said you had her archives. So you're working with not only a person who is highly present in the public arena, but you're also attempting to construct part of a personal life as well to bring about that whole picture, to bring about all of those elements together to create a whole person. And I think that can be extremely difficult when you're dealing with a historical figure that you also admire and uphold. Yeah. And because I've done that before to write shorter biographies, I did that. I wrote about Black men and their relationships with their fathers in a previous text. I knew that I could not get emotionally attached to her. That was really important. Try to see what she saw through her perspective and to tell that story, but to remember that I'm a biographer and that I'm not Alice Dunbar Nelson. Mm-hmm. And so that was extremely important to me because I've had a situation where I got too close to the subject and found myself crying and hoping that that this was actually with Malcolm X and hoping that he wouldn't get killed at the end of his <laughs> biography, which is ridiculous, right? Because oh God. the man was murdered in 1965. But I got so attached to him. I don't, I don't usually talk about that. It, it may even be obvious in my work. And I think I'm as protective of her as I would be with any Black woman subject that I'm writing about, but not to the extreme that there are times when I say, you know, that just wasn't right, honey. That was ugly, what you did there, right? So I try, there are times when I just try to be objective and say, this is what happened. She has affairs and she's married and people have taken me to task. Well, that's what happened. She's a bisexual woman. Talk to Christian women who have questions about that. That's not my issue. Mm -hmm. My mission is to present the facts in the story. This is who she was. Yeah, absolutely. You're a biographer and you are bringing the truth to the page. And a whole life, a whole person is never going to always be pretty. That's just the way it is. Doesn't matter who you're looking at, I don't think. Yeah, that's and really that's what it. makes us interesting. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> I mean, God forbid, I don't want anybody to ever write my biography. Jesus, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm from a very, very, very small town in Ohio. And we actually have an author who was from here. Her name was Dawn Powell. And Literally, no one knows who she is. Like, she is lost in the shuffle. She was, she's an amazing novelist. Uh, she was friends with Tolstoy. Like, she is just mm-hmm. this really cool person that had a really cool life and did some amazing things. But she also had some tragic things in her life and some things that were questionable to certain 
groups of people. And when I read her biography, similar feelings because I do feel drawn to this person who is a writer like me from an extremely small town. She actually wrote a short story about the town that I live in and am from. I have a great affinity with her and I can be emotional about her, but nobody is canonized here. We're all just people. She Podcasts Live will be taking place in Washington, D.C. from October 11th through 14th at the MGM National Harbor. This event is the world's largest gathering of women podcasters and is perfect for audio content creators, storytellers, and more. Attendees can expect to learn from female-identifying-only podcast editors, social media marketers, authors, podcast hosts, and more during this four-day event. She Podcasts Live is committed to bringing a diverse and inclusive lineup of speakers with the team working hard in order to make sure those chosen are 50% women of color, LGBTQIA+, or both. They also highlight industry experts as well as leaders so attendees can get an inside look at what it's like being one on top. She Podcasts Live is a great opportunity for all levels of podcasters. Register now and join us in D.C. this October at ShePodcastLive.com. And use the code WWPF to get $50 off your ticket. So I want to talk a little bit, too, about See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure During the Interwar Era. So tell us a little bit about what that book is about and um, the spectrum of everything that it covers. Again, it goes back to my interest in biography and the lives of Black women at a particular time. In many ways, it's certainly in conversation with the Alice book, as I call it, Love Activism and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. I almost want to call it a sequel, but it's funny because the Alice book came out in January and this book came out in February. But again, I wrote Alice over a 10 year period. And this book was written maybe in the seventh, eighth year I started writing that book. And why did I start writing that book? Well, because Alice Dunbar Nelson gave so much of herself to activism, to uplifting the lives of Black people, and of course, changing perspectives about Black people in the United States of America. She was, along with those other Black activists, the kind of American that we would want to see. She wanted a better country. She dies, though, in 1935. She had some ailments She was in poor health for much of her life, and part of that probably came from the abuse that she suffered in her marriage with Paul Lawrence. But I began to wonder, what about Black women who are making a life and they put themselves first? Who Mm. did that? What did that look like? So then if the community or the race benefits from the work that they're doing, that's great. But what if it's not their priority? And so that's why they're in conversation, because I wanted to look at Black women from a different perspective. And and this also comes with the fact that over a 10-year period, I'm also getting older. 
So mm-hmm. my perspective is changing as well. And we have the Black Lives Matter movement, Obama's reelection. And so all of the, our country is changing in the time in which I'm writing. I looked at four Black women, Lena Horne, Moms Mabley, W.E.B. Du Bois's daughter, Yolanda Du Bois, Memphis Minnie, who's a blues singer. So four Black women from different walks of life who were born in the late 1800s, who lived late 1800s to 1900, who lived maybe into the 70s, 80s. Um, Lena Horne lives a little bit longer. But what did it look like for these women who lived their, their lives? Moms Mabley was a comedian, so she certainly brought pleasure to others. She was very successful as a comedian. She was also a lesbian at a time in which same-sex relationships, people could find themselves being jailed. But everybody knew that she was a lesbian. So we have her, we have this eloquent woman in the form of Lena Horne, who was also a civil rights movement. Memphis Minnie, very little work on her, but she was someone who was a pioneer in country blues music, As her name suggests, she was a Southern woman. So I always want to include some perspective on Southerness in my work because I'm I'm from the South for generations now. And I wanted to write about her music and what it meant for this blues woman to talk openly about finding pleasure in sex, what she would do if a man mistreated her. So I really enjoyed listening to her music and invite others to do so as well. And then we have Yolanda Du Bois, who was a Black woman of privilege, being of the upper class. Her father was the most renowned scholar in the country with with an international reputation. I'm able to track her life through letters and found out so much about her because like Alice Dunbar Nelson, I wanted to separate her from this famous man and to look closely at who she was and what did pleasure look like for her. I enjoyed writing it. I finished writing it during the first year of the pandemic. So it ends with me discussing what pleasure looked like for me during a particular time. I guess I would say all of my books are my favorites because because I wrote them. (laughs) But that was a book that I feel like I'm glad that I wrote it, started writing it before a pandemic that we didn't know was coming, but that I was able to finish it at that time because I needed to finish it at that time. That was the book that, that I would have wanted to write during a pandemic. When we talk about women's desire, women's sexuality, and just women even having desire, I feel like to a lot of people, amazingly, this is still news. And I think that's ridiculous, number one. But, you know, being a woman and moving through the world and declaring that you do, in fact, have desires and have specific things that you are or are not attracted to or that you have once in the first place still seems to be kind of a shocker for a lot of people. And there's an extra wrinkle there when you're a person of color. So if you can talk about that a little bit, that would be fascinated. 
Well, yeah, I do talk about in the introduction that we have to consider for Black women this history in the United States and other parts of the world, also the history of slavery and of rape. And so then how do Black women define themselves outside of that history? So what, what's the impact of that history of that trauma? Black women are often placed into these stereotypical categories. And so then if a Black woman, especially if she's light-skinned, desires to have sex or desires to be looked at as a sexual being, then she's probably thought of then as this Jezebel figure, this slut, this woman who we see it now as being the the welfare queen, the welfare mother. She Mm -hmm. has all these children. There are no fathers. And it's, it's because she's just irresponsible. I think even in conversations about abortions and the impact that that has on Black women, that in the back of the mind, when we discuss the the greater impact on Black women, that stereotype is still going to sort of force its way through. If Black women are greatly impacted and they need abortions, then it's probably because they are more sexually irresponsible in this animalistic way than women of other races, Mm -hmm. right? We always have to deal with this history that was thrust upon us. This is the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade, one of many legacies of the transatlantic slave trade. And so what I had to do was to discuss that, but I couldn't stay in that. I do talk about what pleasure looks like for Black women. It can be laughter. It can be being with a lover of choice, of consenting to that. Or during the pandemic, you know, for some of us, it could be something as simple as cooking. It could be Mm -hmm. listening to music or performing. Performance means so much. It's multi-layered. So those are some of the things that I get into in the book. I think it's so true what you're saying about the pandemic kind of helping us to find other sources of pleasure, I think in life. And yes, touch is amazing and having a partner or someone that you're with, you know, those are all wonderful things and I wouldn't trade them for anything. I think the pandemic really made us sit down and think about other ways to fulfill ourselves. You were talking about using the time to write the book and it was the specific book that you needed at that time. I was similar in that I started undertook some projects that normally I would not have done. This is my shut-in time. This is my sphere. This is my cone. And now is the time for me to do the introspective work and work on myself too, in a lot of ways. Those are times where I think that we were asked to redefine ourselves. So some people gained weight for example, during the pandemic, and I decided that that was going to be the time where I was going to lose weight. But I began to do a lot of walking. And I had moved into this neighborhood a year before, and I was the person of color in the neighborhood. Mm. And this was also the time in which Ahmad Aubrey is shot jogging through a neighborhood in Georgia. Yeah. So when I talk about walking 
walking isn't just a pleasurable experience. It's also an experience where I have to navigate how I understand that the world sees me. Yeah. And all of this is in the book because if I have to experience this in 2020, whatever, think about how these Black women are having these kinds of experiences in the early 1900s. One aspect that I'm also talking about is Black women's performance versus the voyeuristic perspective that she has to deal with and navigate, that challenge of the voyeuristic perspective, which on one hand could mean For someone like Moms Mabley, if the audience is looking at her, then she's making money off that. If she's not on the stage, what happens when she's walking around? Lena Horne has this wonderful line in her biography where she says there were times where she just hated white men looking at her when she performed. Mm -hmm. Now, her second husband was a white man. So we look at the multi-layers of complexity, what it means to be a Black person in America, how some things change, but some things are just the same as they always were. We all just have to listen to each other because you took the opportunity of the pandemic to walk and to exercise and you lost weight. I did too. I started running during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. which I'd never done before. But my story as a white woman is completely different from yours. And the story of a man who says, I'm going to start jogging during the pandemic of a white man that makes this decision is completely different from the story of any woman. And a black man's story is completely different from the white man's. Like, it's just, I know that's all simplistic. I know I am Mm -hmm. not making any large discoveries here. It's just something that I am constantly reminding myself because you started to talk about, yeah, I started running and I wanted to be like, oh my gosh, me too. And then I'm like, oh yeah, but it was a completely different experience on your end, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the kinds of things that we have to think about before leaving. Of course, never leaving the house without a license. Putting on a t-shirt of the university where I work and not wearing other kinds of t-shirts that that may present um, in certain ways. But certainly I never would walk around that neighborhood without having the university t-shirt on in the wow. biggest letters that I could. Wow. <laughs> in these large letters. This yeah. I would make sure that I had that t-shirt on because it showed that I belonged to something that people respected. Yeah. Wow, that is so fucked up. Like, I know that you know that, but shit. (laughs) Last thing, why don't you let listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find any of your books, but most especially Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, which is available from Bloomsbury, as well as See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure During the Interwar Era. Well, there are links to my work and more information about me at www.drtaratgreen.com. Those books are available by the publisher, See Me Naked is available through Rutgers University Press. As you've mentioned, Bloomsbury has the Alice Dunbar Nelson book. 
they are available through online bookstores, but I always encourage people to purchase their books from independent bookstores, local independent bookstores. But you can also, if there's not a Black-owned bookstore in your area, and that may be the case, then go online because there are many Black-owned bookstores such as Community Bookstore in New Orleans, which you can order from online. And I'm just saying New Orleans because I'm from there and I've, I've done a, a book signing there. So I know that they'll take care of you. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.